0: Hi, I'm Len App from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Daniel Godoy. Based in Berlin, Daniel is a data scientist, developer, teacher, and writer who has been working for over 20 years in a range of industries and sectors, including banking, government, and retail, amongst others. In recent years, he has also been teaching machine learning and distributed computing technologies at Data Science Retreat, the longest-running Berlin-based boot camp on the subject. You can read Daniel's popular posts at dvgodoy.medium.com and Towards Data Science at towardsdatascience.com. You can follow him on Twitter at dvgodoy and check out his profile on LinkedIn. Daniel is the author of the LeanPub book, Deep Learning with PyTorch Step-by-Step, A Beginner's Guide. In the book, Daniel uses a conversational and first principle approach to help beginners interested in learning about deep learning and PyTorch, a tool used to make it easier to build models in the Python programming language. In this interview, we're going to talk about Daniel's background and career, professional interests, his book, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience as a self-published book author. So thank you very much, Daniel, for being on the LeanPub Front Matter podcast.
1: Thank you for having me here and thanks for the nice introduction.
0: (laughs) Thanks. Um, I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you made your way into your career.
1: Uh, I was born in Rio, so I guess everyone knows Rio. But uh, when I was very, very young, four years old or so, I'm, uh, my, my parents moved to Porto Alegre, a city in the south of Brazil. Uh, I lived there until 2015. So most of my life. Um, and I started... Um, when I was very young, I started coding, you know, programming already. So this is something that uh, is with me since I was eight years old. So my first computer was uh, even even younger than that. In 1982, my father bought a computer. So I started co- copying code from, from the basic language to, to, to the computer and running the stuff. So that's something that has been with me all my life. Um, then I did... Uh, uh, a degree in computer science, still in Porto Alegre. Uh, After that, I worked for a little bit over 10 years as a software developer in a a small company, also in Porto Alegre, that that I used to develop uh, banking systems for financial institutions, no credit, leasing, all these kind of things. I always had some taste for the financial sector. This is something that always got my interest. So that was a very nice fit. But then at some point, you know, um, I was not so happy with b- being in the same place for 10 years. <laughs> I kind of got uh, tired of that. Uh, and then I tried something completely different. Uh, I got a government job in Brazil. You know, this is very popular there because you get a nice, nice payslip. You know, it's very chill most of the time. Um so i started working for the secretary of finance for the treasury part in south of brazil it was a completely different world right so i was not coding or so programming so much anymore i still doing some uh, doing some of that to help improve the process and stuff in in, in the job but most of the the, of the thing was about uh, making financial projections for uh, revenues debt ratios for the for the state you know these the, kind of things uh, and the funny thing is that at some point it was 2012 uh, you know sometimes it, it, it's like you know, the butterfly butterfly effect thing. I really like to think that some of the stuff that happens to you in life is so it's a moment that someone assuming something that's so simple but ends up having a, a major impact on everything. So I remember I was having a conversation with a colleague of mine and we were like, okay, uh, we are analyzing the, this uh, kind of now, I mean, for people that don't, don't are not familiar with it, it's kind of boring, to the, the debt to revenue ratios and stuff. And they were like, why is our state lagging so much behind the others? Why is the state we're used to live in so bad in, in terms of that? And then we started making hypotheses, and, you know, trying to, to figure out what happened and simulations with that. And then I got really, it really caught, uh, caught my interest because I was like, okay, well, well, maybe I can try to simulate what happened, right? And to make a projection, uh, a forecast based on that. And we got some, something going on. Uh, And then a colleague of mine uh, that that was sitting there, he said, no, maybe you should write a paper on that. And and then I wrote a paper on that, you know, uh, using stochastic simulation to make these forecasts. And they submitted this paper to an award that is uh, this uh, National Treasury Award in Brazil. And they won that. (laughs) You know, I, I never thought I would have won that. I was like, okay, yeah, I wrote something that was cool. I submitted, maybe some, someone can acknowledge that. And there was all this fuss about it. You know, the, the people from from uh, the one of the major newspaper in Brazil uh, got in touch. They made a, 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 an article based on, on the results and all stuff. And, and that was a life-changing moment because at that moment, okay, yeah, I like analyzing data, you know? So the, uh, the, that was I can pinpoint that was the, the the starting point of my career as a data scientist. That was like, okay, I want to do that, and then I started investing a little bit more. I wrote more things for for this uh, uh, for, regarding the public sector in Brazil, analyzing other other things like efficiency and, and other topics. But then again, after five or six years, I was like, okay, there is nothing much left for me to do here. Uh, And then I wanted to do something different again. Uh, And I wanted to invest more in the data science uh, career. And my, my, my wife always wanted to move abroad. She always, she, she wanted to be a diplomat. She wanted to, to work, uh, you know, the embassy and stuff, but I mean, she, she was not, she was doing something else. And then we are like, okay, maybe we can try to go to Europe. To see what we can do there, uh, and that's when I found this data science retreat, this boot camp in Berlin that, that, that you also mentioned in the introduction. Uh, I applied to it. They 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 selected me for the boot camp, and then in the end of two thousand fifteen, and mo- we moved there. You know, we uh, got um, this. Um, a paid uh, an unpaid leave from a job because I did not know if this was going to work or not, right? It's a major, a major change. Uh, but then three months passed. I graduated from the program. I managed to get a job in Berlin with a small fintech. Uh, and then things started happening. The, uh, after a year or so, they invited me to teach there. That was something that was also kind of out of the blue, you know. And and, and I mean, I, I always like the explaining concepts to, you know, trying to to figure out how things work. This is something that, that I always caught. Uh, I was always interested in doing. But then I was like, okay, they're teaching to to a bunch of students that were also like me, uh, trying to get uh, their their career started in data science. And then that was very nice because then I found out that, okay, not only I like data science, but I also like teaching. <laughs> um, and then from there, I, I changed jobs a couple of times uh, it, it, since then, but I've been teaching uh, in the Data Science retreat uh, from 2016 until the 2000, uh, beginning of 2020. Then with the pandemic everything changed right because it was this was not uh, the, it was an in on-site program so it would make sense to go there and they'll you know, interact with your colleagues and you develop projects and all of a sudden okay, yeah freeze everything now yeah everyone is on lockdown and then i mean look there will, uh, as everything in life there is good and bad bad side uh, bad things to to bad side to everything right and in that case the lockdown gave me the chance to start writing the book so that's when the ideas started. You know, in March uh, 2020, I, I had the idea, but you know, you never started doing it. Yeah, tomorrow I'm going to do that. Yeah, tomorrow I'm going to do that. And then okay, and now I'm stuck at home. I don't have anything else to do. Okay, maybe now it's time to start writing this, and that's when I started the book. <laughs> um, and it was a long, long book. You know, that, that's uh, I, I, I don't, I didn't keep track of everything, but maybe I spent like a thousand hours or so writing that. It was huge. Um,
0: yeah, thanks. Thanks very much for sharing that that great story. Um, there's so many part <laughs> there's so many parts to it. Um, and we'll we'll get to we'll get to talking specifically about your book and what it's about, and then the process of writing it, and and what got that the ball rolling there as well and thanks for letting uh, talking a little bit about too about how pardon me how the the pandemic sort of you know gave you the time or the opportunity to do it um that's actually it's funny in the publishing industry generally that was sort of true and a lot of a lot of sort of conventional publishers were like enough we've had enough manuscripts submitted to us you know and they always get more than they want anyway but but actually on this podcast and on lean pub we've had quite a few guests and you know quite a few authors generally who've had you know a similar thing i mean including i think one one story was a guy's friend was going to be uh, in quarantine for two weeks. So he's like, let me help you edit your book. And the guy was like, well, no, then I better get started writing it. You know? So, um, uh, and there's, you know, I've had another guest who I think went to visit his parents and then got stuck because of a, a sudden lockdown in I think Northern Italy. And he's like, well, time to write my book. <laughs> so we've had, we've had a few guests who've had a similar experience like that, but I'm um, just, just going back to the beginning of your story. So, uh, your dad got a computer and you, and you were sort of figuring out how to code on that and stuff. And then you did a computer science degree in, in the mid-90s. One question uh, that comes up often on this podcast or in some form or another is if you were starting out now, you were 18 years old, say, and you were intending to have a career that was some, some technology related, computers related, um, would you get a formal university degree in computer science or would you choose another path given all the changes and all the new tools and resources that are available now?
1: it's still important uh, to some extent even though you can get lots of things from the internet for free uh, i would say that the, the biggest challenge is to organize yourself and stick to a schedule right because i think one of the facts that you have like uh, you, you're enrolled in a course and you you're in an institution and even if you're paying in brazil for instance uh, i was attending a public university so it was free but still, right, you have a commitment and then you have to go there. Yeah. So I, I think that, that that helps organizing. Someone have put a lot of thought into organizing the content and seeing how it fits better. Of course, it's, it's always going to be at a slower pace than what you'll get yourself if you're doing stuff online, right? But I, I, would, I would stick with uh, the formal education still.
0: Yes. I'm speaking of formal education, so you you got your computer science degree and you you worked, I believe, as a programmer in banking for, for a while, but then you made the shift to the Department of the Treasury for the government. Um, and I, I can see from your LinkedIn profile there that you got um, a bachelor's degree in economics late, later on in life uh, and uh, and a master's and an MBA as well. Uh, and I'm curious, did, did your um, computer science education help you when you were con- suddenly uh, being uh, given problems in finance? Like... Um, uh, I don't know, interest coverage ratios, or as you were saying, sort of, you know, interest to debt ratios or debt to income ratios and stuff like that. Did having a computer science background help you sort of face those challenges?
1: Once you know how to to code, then you can solve pretty much anything, right? It, it, that's funny because, it, especially in the government, there was lots of things that were like doing a suboptimal way because everyone knows how to use Excel, but not everyone knows how to use Excel properly, right? So uh, a a couple of VBA macros, even some people say, yeah, this is not a real coding. I mean, okay, I'm not into that discussion, but even some coding in something very simple as a VBA macro already helps and makes uh, process is much more efficient. So yeah, definitely. The, I, I think that knowing how to code and knowing properly uh, also algorithms, right? Because one thing that I remember learning in, in college, it was like, okay, uh, how do you graph theory? It was so abstract when I got, got this in 1995. What am I going to use that for? But then uh, at some point later in life, okay, maybe you can use this. You know, there are things things in, in, in real life that you can use uh, stuff like that for. So that's why one of the reasons why I also stand for the formal education. Because maybe if you're doing a curriculum for yourself, you're like, oh yeah, I mean, no. Nowadays, not so much for graph theory, but there is always some topic that you may neglect because you don't think that's important because you don't know that's good, that may be important, right? Um, but yeah, but the, going back to the original question, definitely, well, I think that knowing, uh, having a degree in computer science and knowing how to code really helps with everything.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I know. It's, it's, it's funny. I'm I'm not going to talk about myself too much, but um, I had a kind of funny sort of backwards experience from yours where um, I went into investment banking and I had to do financial modeling. It was a lot of time in Excel. And I didn't realize that I was coding. Like I had no idea that I was basically doing like functional programming or something like that. Right. Um, And uh, I remember, I mean, you'd have way more, more stories than me, but I remember sort of, I had no idea what a VBA macro was until some, uh, guys from one of the big five accounting firms gave us a spreadsheet that had hidden sheets in it that were locked. And I was so angry that they would do that, right? Because it's like, and I don't know for anyone who's worked with Excel a lot, like, you know, there's sort of conventions when you're passing files around, right? One is either you give someone the output or you give them the whole thing, but to give them the output with the calculations hidden in the same spreadsheet is just offensive. And so I I found a VBA macro that I could use to crack the like the password protection in Excel to get those hidden sheets. And it didn't really make, I mean, it actually did help a lot sort of understanding what was really going on. It was not, I wasn't like sort of finding out any real secrets. It was just sort of rude on my counterparty's part to sort of hide that. But, but um, yes, you know, like it, it is a lot of people in, who work in finance will know how to use Excel, but if you actually really push and learn, learn, you know, to get to another level, then you can, it's not just that now you're, you're faster or something. There's, there's all kinds of things you can do and it can actually be just inherently like enjoyable and it sounds ridiculous, but it's true. There's some people just love, love spreadsheets and what you can do with them. And so uh, I wanted to ask you a little bit. So uh, a lot of our guests, um, I think there's some, there's something about self-publishing being sort of independent. And uh, a lot of our guests are people who've moved around a fair amount. Not that that's so unusual nowadays, or even in many times in the past. But what was it like for you moving moving from Brazil to uh, Berlin to Germany?
1: <laughs> that was something, right? Uh, first, because we had to pack everything that we could and move to a different country in forty days. You know, getting all your affairs in order to move to a different place—you know, all the legal stuff—that was like insane, and fitting everything that you, not everything that you, but actually everything that you want to keep into five or six large bags. That's very challenging. I I, I kind of cheated on that. I still have like a lot of stuff in the storage unit in Brazil because like okay I cannot handle that, but they are still there, <laughs> so I have to, to solve it at some point. Uh, but um, apart from 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 these these practicalities, right? There the, the is. There is a lot of different things when you compare Brazil and Germany, and I think in, in, in two different cultures, right? I was um, a bit surprised because, I mean, in Brazil we have, or I mean, at least I had some, some ideas, right, that uh, I, I expected to be more similar, to be honest. And I was a bit surprised that a lot of many, many different small things sometimes are different. You're like, okay, whoa, 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 how does that work? Um, but of course there are uh, uh, the good and the bad side. One for the, for especially speci- for the good side is that one one major problems in Brazil that everyone knows is violence, right? So we have like criminality is like off the charts. And th- th- this is something that uh, you grow up in and then you are like, you learn to be aware of your surroundings, you know and paying attention to it. if you go in of the car or get out of the car. And this is something that like like three months in when Germany, we're like, oh, we feel lighter now. What's happening? You know, because you don't have to look over your shoulder. You can get your phone and not worry about being someone trying to snatch your phone and running away. Uh, so that was very liberating. You know, that, that was really a really good sensation that... And most people take for granted, right? When I, when I was discussing this with, uh, with the people in, in, in Germany, and not only Germans, but the Spaniards, Portuguese people, Ukrainians, everyone else. And then you say, yeah, you know, this is so cool. You don't have to worry about this. You're like, what do you mean? And then I tell them how uh, reality is in, in a South American country. And they're like, oh, whoa, really? So that, that was one of the, the, of the key differences. Uh, and then of course you have all the, these small differences, right? One thing that was, uh, I, I miss the most is the food. <laughs> Because Brazilian food, especially where they come from, you know, you go to these all-you-can-eat buffet, so you, you know, you may eat uh, your face, stuff your face with food and barbecues all over the place, and this is not, you can find that in Germany or in Europe, in Europe for that matter. Uh, so yeah i mean but trade-offs right so life is about trade-offs in, in that case i got a different career I, you know that's some I, I don't know if i would be uh, a, a published author a self-published author if i would hadn't moved to europe because the, the kind of connections the kind of people that you get to know in europe is so different because in brazil you 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 do, we don't have foreigners right so you don't have these exchange, these opportunities. It's very local, and there I, I, I got in touch with many people from all over the world, especially teaching a data science retreat, which I think it was one of the best things that I've done. Well, taking this this job as teacher, because I got like 150 or or, or so students from all over the world you know different experiences and that is so nice because you have this network you exchange ideas you 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 make referrals for other jobs right so it's also nicer to find a new job if you have this network
0: so, yeah, that, that's really fascinating um, i've got a have got a question about your your sort of when you're moving to data science specifically and, and how that happened but um i just i can't i can't help but just, there's some joke in there about the difference between a currywurst stand and a Brazilian steakhouse. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it's funny what you say about um, moving somewhere and sort of the thing you, you realize that there's something that's not there that is where you're from, but you never really thought about it until it was not there anymore. And I remember when I moved from um, Saskatchewan, this province in Canada to London, um, not, that, not that outside bars, there was a lot of violence, but if you were a, if you were a guy and you were at the bar, the possibility of a bar fight was just always, it's just a punchy, punchy place. Right. And, and so, you know, I remember some people asking me like, Oh, aren't you, aren't you, don't you feel kind of intimidated by being in the big city? And I'm like, no, like I've never felt safer uh, at least in bars (laughs) than I did in in London, uh, because it's just that there's at least in the, you know, the parts of London that I sort of normally went to not all though, but um, you know, punch-ups just weren't, weren't really a thing. Um, But anyway, on that, on that note, so, so you, so, Oh, yeah, so eventually you found yourself, uh, you know, in Germany, and you and you were doing data science. Had you had you been doing data science before you started teaching? I imagine
1: that was uh, about this this paper that I wrote with the simulation. So it was not data science as we know today. It was some sort of you know uh, on on the way to, on towards data science, <laughs> like like the, the like the 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 medium publication. Um, because I was doing like stochastic simulation for these, these, these treasury uh, indicators and stuff, but uh, I was using MATLAB back then. So I was, I was not doing uh, data science using Python as everyone does today, as I'm, as I'm doing today. Uh, but it was very useful in the sense that it, uh, I was doing the, the vectorization, like making everything vectorize the operations. It's something that I struggle a bit to learn while using MATLAB, but once you learn it, that's awesome, right? Because now, now you can just use this in NumPy, and everything else works the same. So I think uh, really struggling to understand these in MATLAB and performing these stochastic simulation for writing that paper really helped me with the foundations for the stuff that would come after,
0: right? And just, just for anyone listening, let's say, let's say, um, can you maybe uh, tell us what a stochastic? uh simulation is uh,
1: so basically what happens is that um, the, the, the forecast that we had uh, that, that was uh, being done before it would assume that lot, there was a growth rate of three percent a year something like that uh it could be true on average but the thing is of course one year the economic uh, the revenue would grow five percent the other year it would go you no know, down one percent you never know um basically what we did, uh, what I did there was instead of assuming this linear growth, I would like randomize between uh, like minus three and plus three percent. It depends on the parameter of the simulation, but you just draw from a uh, normal distribution these, these values and I would assume those, uh, d- draw samples from one scenario and compute how much it would lead me to and then again, and then again, and then again. So would like to do this 10,000 times. Basically, as if there were ten thousand uh, parallel universes where different things happen, right? Uh, then you know, okay, the, if I if I would go to all visit all these ten thousand uh, universes and then I would average them out, what would be my result? And not only the average, but you can also get okay uh, if I want to get to the eighty percent of the uh, of the, these universes, how much does it? Uh, what's the range that I can find this? whatever indicator that I was trying to simulate. So basically, it's just randomly sampling values that you can use for something, for in this case, forecasting indicator, and doing this a lot of times uh, to have an idea of how, how much it can vary. Um, I hope I you'll. Po- word. Uh, a, no, no, that's, a, yes, 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 that's, no,
0: yes. yes, That's very good. Um, uh, including the idea that you iterate and you do lots, lots of lots and lots of them. Right? It's not just one one simulation, as it were. Um, I guess I'm going to throw you a bit of a curveball question here, but um, when I mean words like data and simulation come up, and in particularly data science, and when computers are involved, people often just assume that what they're shown. Especially if it's charts and numbers that are involved, is true. Um, and uh, often it's if you uh, this has come up a few times on you know in discussions on this podcast where it's like you if you're on the analysis side, you present to people who are not familiar with the way the analysis works, and they often feel like you presented them with the truth. This is the way it's going to go in the next year or in the next five years or something like that. And I guess my curveball question for you then is: uh, Is economics a science?
1: <laughs> yeah. Okay. The, 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 oh, that's a tricky question because I mean, no. Can I? Can I not answer that question? No, you're kidding. I'm, i
0: <laughs> You can. You can opt out. That's for sure.
1: Yeah. No, I know. I know. But uh, I mean, that's tricky, right? I think that I mean it is a science in a sense that you you can you know, um, if you, what what does it mean to be a science, right? You have uh, organized knowledge and then you have hypotheses, assumptions, you try to make predictions and stuff, right? Uh, What I don't agree with are some of the assumptions that are made in economics, you know? Um, I mean, of course, you have the different different schools of thought and everyone has different assumptions and it's, it's, and I, so some of those are simply not realistic, right? And the, for instance, one is ergodicity. Basically, does it mean if you have the expected value? Let's say that you make a bet, right? So I propose to you a bet, and then tell you, okay, here's the thing: either you will get hundred million dollars, or if you lose, you you have to give me one million dollars. I'm assuming that you don't have a million dollars for the sake of this, right? <laughs> then. Uh, depending on the probability of uh, winning or losing this, you may say the expected value of this bet is like positive. So you should take the bet. Let's say that for the sake of that 90% of the time you would lose, and 10% of the time you get this 100 million. The thing is, if you, if you were able to leave a hundred different lines and make this bet a hundred in multiple universes, right? Uh, if you would like be able to bet all this, the average you over all these universes would have a positive uh, value. You would be profiting. But you are only one. You're, you cannot connect or talk to the other youth in the, multi, in the multiple universes. So if you lose and you don't have a million dollars, now you're <laughs> in a bad shape, right? Not to say a curse word here. Uh, and then, the, but this, this is the assumption that you have ergodicity that you can just do over. There is no do over in life. So how can you make this an assumption of your model, Right. So for me, this is the, the the problem that I see with this, and I know that if if people would like challenge this, and the people don't don't uh, would not agree with that what I'm saying here. But just like that's just my opinion on the topic, right? But for sure, there are many different opinions on that.
0: Yeah, thank you very much for sharing that very specific that very specific opinion. It's one. Um, I I, I mean I'm not a trained economist, but it's one I I share very very much. Um, particularly I think it's um. When, when people have a kind of, when they're in areas like, let's say psychology or economics, and there may be professors and they write papers and they teach at universities and things like that, they can often trick themselves into a kind of intellectual chauvinism where they think it's really straightforward. What, um, reason is, for example, what the, ra- what the rational things to do, or what it, what is, what is in a person's interests to do. Right. But like what counts as rational is actually outside the realm of economics, that's, that's philosophy and ethics, even Um, what counts as in your interests is is a, is a philosoph is a question for philosophers and ethicists and, and, and not for economics or, or for psychology. And so one of my favorite examples of of the kind of thing you're talking about, so people set up these little scenarios and then, uh, and this this is why I call, I still use the word chauvinism. They sort of proceed as though it's really obvious what the right answer is. And it's like, you know, I'm sure you've heard the one where um, I I always forget the name of it uh, because I just don't have any respect for it, but the one, the scenario where it's like, okay, you and you, there's you and this other person, right? And you can either choose to have that person get $99 and you get $1 or neither of you gets anything. Well, the rational thing is to, to take the $1 and let the other person get the 99 because one is more than zero. And it's like, that only follows if there's some, an unstated fact of this scenario which is counterintuitive, which is that value is uh, absolute rather than relative, which is not how money works, right? A scenario in which me and this other person are with respect to everything else equal, and now he has relatively more of something than I do, is actually worse for me. It's not better. Um, uh, if you see what I mean, right. And like, it's, so so you, 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 you have to add the extra thing and like, Oh, and bio with the way in this crazy universe, money has absolute rather than relative value. What does that even mean? Um, uh, it's, it's not clear, but you know, that then, but you, you can't, I don't know. You just sometimes can't, you can't get, get through to people when they're behind this kind of wall. And that, that's one of the reasons I asked the question, sort of leading question about, about it was economics of science, because often people Use the status of economics as a science to kind of get away with not really thinking through some of the deeper philosophical questions that they just take for granted, like what's rational or what's in a person's interest.
1: Yeah, so what what you're describing is called the ultimatum game. So basically it is exactly, you you would rather be, they say that would rather be with more money than less money. But uh, I think it's not only about the, the relative versus absolute, but a measure of fairness. So what this plays it with your judgment on how what's fair, what's not. So do you think it's fair? The other guy have 99 and you have only one. So they they, they have experiments with that and they say, okay, as long as the, um, I don't remember now, I, I read about this, but it's been a long time. I think if you have one third and the other person has two thirds, that's acceptable for most people. But if it gets more skewed than that, then it's a no-go. Of course it changes, right? But on, on, the idea is that it's not, Uh, the outcome is not fair and therefore it doesn't matter if you get more money with that because if if you think that it's unfair then of course you'll say okay whatever I don't mind losing the money as long as I can prove that that, that the other person know that was not fair what I don't know is that of course these experiments they're always made with like tiny amounts of money right so you get like one buck or ten bucks or something like that I would wonder what would happen if, like, someone would do an experiment with that, to, 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 like, life-changing amount of money. So let's say that I give you a hundred thousand, and the other guy has five million. Would you take it or not? I think that changes a lot, right? Because even if you think, okay, that's fair as hell, but I mean, that's a hundred thousand. I mean, anyone can use a hundred thousand, right? So I, I don't know how. You no, know, probably we never know the answer to that, right? Unless one of the billionaires decides to <laughs> investigate psychological um, uh, aspects of this of these uh, things.
0: Um, yeah. That's, that's so interesting, both of your examples. It sounds like you have a kind of an existentialist's approach to economics, which is really, really <laughs> fascinating. Um, uh, but yes, thank you very much for, for uh, going down this path. Uh, I was sort of excited to get the chance to ask you that question, but I wasn't sure, wasn't sure you'd be up for it. That's so that's so great. Um, and so, uh, yeah, and so um, you, started, you started teaching and, and you also started writing uh, blog posts and things like that. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, how, that, how that got started for you.
1: Also, I'm a bit funny, I was like at some point, I think it was 2017 or so, I thought, okay, what if I try to, to teach a course myself? I, the, the initial idea was to teach in Portuguese. Because I thought, I thought, okay, this is a market that's not like covered by anyone. Data science retreat is in English, you have lots of compet- competitors in English, but in Portuguese, there is also almost nothing. So okay, maybe I can do that, and I start organizing the course. And then I was uh, talking to a friend, and he was like, "Okay, cool, I know you. That's fine, but who the hell are you?" So he said, "Okay, you you're, no one knows you. Why would anyone give you any money?" to to teach something because what your qualifications, right? Of course, I was already working as a data scientist, but still, and then like, okay, I have to get known. How do I do that? I don't care. So maybe I should start writing something. <laughs> That's how the first blog post came to be because I'm like, okay, I'm gonna write something and publish it, right? what there is only upside to that. So I, I got, uh, I, I got to this topic that I really liked, the activation functions in, in deep learning because they do all these really nice uh uh, they twist and turn the feature space, so that's very technical now, but uh, they, they really produce some nice animations that you can visualize what's happening. You know, I, I read a blog post from, from other guy that was very nice, but way over my head, you know, extremely technical, lots of equations and stuff. And I wanted to do something simpler, so not I could understand it better and I could, like, show People that, and that was like the the the, um, the guy from Towards Data Science was really happy with, with the, the, the 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 post, and he was like featured first in the in the in the publication, no, at the front of the page. So I got like two thousand views on the first day. I was like super excited, ref- refreshing like crazy. Oh, 1800, 1900, 2,000, yay! You know, so it was a very nice feeling having two thousand people reading what I wrote. And then I wrote some more until at some point, I wrote one about PyTorch. That was the one that eventually led to the book. So that's, uh, you know, that started in a way that would not anticipate going in that direction,
0: right? And that post, I think, got something like 280,000 views or something like that?
1: The, the, the first one, the, the most popular one is about binary cross entropy. It has almost half a million now. Wow. Views And I, the other day, I, I realized I, I Googled myself in the Google Scholar, and I got 35 citations on that blog post, which is like, no, I also never thought of that. But there is a lot of citations on, on, on this blog post. So yeah, that, that was really great.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's really, that's really, I mean, of course, that must be an amazing experience, but also really good motivation to, to write a book on that when you know that you've, you've got an audience out there already. Um, on that note, so the book, the book is Deep Learning with PyTorch Step-by-Step, A Beginner's Guide. Uh, it's a very big book, as you as you mentioned, all the time you spent working on it. I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, what deep learning is and what PyTorch is. So
1: basically, uh, you have machine learning, right, which is when you have traditional algorithms like um... Linear regression, logistic regression, forest, and then you have deep learning, which is based on neural networks. Uh, neural networks were, they were not so popular until 2014 or so, but then when I was a student at Data Science Retreat in 2015, there were already some developments. So some of my, my colleagues, they used those uh, uh, neural networks in their, uh, in their projects. But it was, uh, you know, a very... Uh, primitive in, in a way that you did not have access to GPUs that's a combination of different things that enable deep learning to be a thing as it is today. One is the availability of data, because these are very uh, data-hungry models. You have to have like thousands or sometimes millions of, of data points or images or something to train those models, and you need a lot of computational power. So, your, GPUs and, and and all this is something that was not so widespread five seven years ago. Uh, so the combination of these two things allowed these all the deep learning to to flourish Um, and then of course you have the big players right they they have a major impact so you have like google have facebook what they do they they do their own models and then once they they train those they release those to the public so they have like the pre-trained models that you can use for something yourself because it's not like you and i or, or or someone is going to train like a huge model like that on their own because you know that if you try that on the cloud you will be off by thousands of dollars and so that that would not be so easy so pretty much everything relies on these pre-trained models because you can use them as a base. Someone, someone else already did the hard work, and now you just have to make a, a small adjustments. Then you have me have an application that detects like the famous cats and dogs. The other day I read about this application that this person, uh, she was detecting if a cat was happy or not. And then you say, okay, that, that seems silly, right? If you like, just look at that, happy or not, why would the cat be unhappy? Turns out that when the cat was unhappy, it was actually sick. So these applications were, were able to detect early signs of sickness in cats. So you know, one was dehydrated, the other had some, some, some other problem. And then the, these people took the, the cats that were not happy and took them to the vet, and then they were able to treat early. So that was really cool, right? What I did not know, I was was curious to know, is like when did she get the unhappy cats pictures from, right? Because you need uh, <laughs> you need the pictures from the unhappy cats to train a model. So that, that that information I couldn't find. But so you know, this is the kind of thing that you can do, and you do that based on these other models that were already pre-trained by one of the big players. Uh, so that's deep learning, right? In in general. Uh, and PyTorch is a framework that you can use to actually handle those models, train them, or use them to make these predictions about cat being happy or not. Uh, PyTorch itself was developed by Facebook. So uh, that, that's been since 2016. Uh, and um, there are two major competing uh, frameworks, TensorFlow, which came first from Google, and PyTorch. I like PyTorch Bender. I mean, of course I'm, I'm biased, right? Because <laughs> I wrote the whole book about it, but I like it because I know it's kind of fun to, to use. If you, if you are a Python programmer and you know how to handle Python, you know it feels so easy and so natural to go through coding using PyTorch. And this is what I was trying to, to convey in the book and also in first in the blog post, you know, I, I actually had a good time learning PyTorch in the beginning because I don't know, it just feels feels natural. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah thanks very much for sharing that and of course we'll have links to the blog post that we mentioned and, there, and everything else in here as well so you can get a, a and and uh, also get a sense of um of daniel's conversational and fun very fun style which you can also see even in the the about the book description on on the landing page on lean pub for the book um it's interesting yeah so um that there's these sort of like this all these big players like google and facebook making competing things but that they're also releasing trained trained kind of models or data sets to, to other people to use. Um, you, the, the, idea of, I mean, you know, you know, we all know the ones, is, is this a cat or probably most people who pay attention to some of this stuff in the, in the press will know about, you know, um, giving, a giving one of these models, uh, a set of pictures, some of which are cats. And then what it does is it sort of runs, runs sort of various algorithms and learns to sort of like get like, you know, which, identify which images are cats. And so it can it can run some simulation or some some effort to identify what are cats and it can check, check it against, well, how many of my guesses were correct and how many were false and blah, blah, blah. And then it can iterate and it can get better. Um, uh, and then it can. And then and they, but basically what it's what they're what the algorithms are doing is looking for correlations uh, in, the, in the data, generally speaking, if I understand it correctly. And, and is that is that is that I mean, I'm sure that's a big oversimplification
1: it's not so much as correlations but uh, i mean this is tricky to explain especially if you don't have like a way to show people uh, what's happening but you know it, it, basically what happens is you you map in this case, an image, for instance, right? Or the features that you're using in the model into a gigantic dimensional space, right? Because you have like two 2 dimensional, three dimensional that we can see and plot nicely and they have four dimensions, we just start getting weird. And then they, they, even there is this joke that says say, okay, uh, how do you imagine something in 14 dimensions? You know, you just uh, close your eyes, say 14 really loud and then you, you go. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but then when you talk about deep learning models, they have like millions and millions of parameters. So there will be millions of dimensions. So that's impossible to, to visualize or to even understand what, what's going on uh, in a visual way. But uh, the idea is that uh, all these instances, these images, let's say that you're doing cats happy or unhappy, like like I was saying, right? Um, what will happen is that the, the happy cats, they will be mapped into a a region of this crazy dimensional space and the unhappy cats will be mapped to a different region. So now if you were saying like this will be like three-dimensional, right? You have like, a, like a, a ball, right? And then you see on the left side of your ball, there are the happy cats. On the right side of the right hemisphere of the ball, there are the unhappy cats. And then maybe if you if you get really uh, well-trained mode and it's easy enough, you can like, you know, get in, cut the ball in half and you have happy cats on one side, unhappy on the other. Uh, so that's oversimplification, right? But the idea is that you're gonna separate them. Uh, so it's not so much about correlation, but about mapping into these, these uh, dimensional sp- uh, multi-dimensional spaces. Yeah, it's so weird just describing it it's a little weird if I can if I can draw this like I do to the students it it helps
0: yeah no but I, I mean I've got to say like I mean I really love it I, I really love personally like weird weird descriptions of things because they remind you that you like even though you may be like me you've read a lot of articles about this kind of thing you really don't understand it um, <laughs> and just giving giving you a sense that there's this this sort of what to you is a mystery um, uh, there's there's something solid behind it but it, it has to be presented to you as a mystery because you don't understand Understand it um, uh, it's interesting too because i mean of course other things that people will be familiar with the news about these kinds of models is sometimes they can make mistakes for example you know they can they can identify people of a certain race as being more likely to do x y and z for all kinds of reasons that have nothing to do with race whatsoever but you know the, the if there's basically you know uh bad data basically um you can get you can get bad results and so you have to be careful about that but another very interesting and in its own way kind of controversial application is uh Self-driving vehicles, and I know that, um, you know, for example, Tesla uses Pi And in this case, it's not happy cat or sad cat; it's like cyclist or street sign. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, it was just, I was just—I just was generally speaking. Um, what's your what's your sense of like where technologies like that are going to be in, say, five years? And again, that's a total like curveball kind of question, but
1: yeah, that's tricky. Right? The self-driving. Ah that's interesting that that's like nice to think in theoretical terms but you know it's delayed yeah, because if you read the like, news from 2016 they'll say yeah in 2019 when i have like full self-driving cars doing everything and then we're like okay three years past that already and mm-hmm. some of the companies are like not doing the, that anymore i mean tesla is still doing but it's a hard problem right and then um Technically speaking, I, I find this challenging and interesting, but from the practical point of view, I wonder if that's wise, you know? Because I remember maybe 10 years ago or so, uh, before deep learning and though computer vision became so widespread, the talk about self-driving car was not about a smart car, but about a smart road. You know, you, you remember this uh, Minority Report or uh, iRobot movies, the cars were like, you know, evenly spaced on the road and they were they, being driven by the sensors or whatever in the road that they would like move really fast because, you know, every, everything was in place. Because at the end of the day, the traffic, that's um, a a controlling problem, right? You have to have, if you had some some central authority handling traffic, or in that case, something controlling traffic, it would be optimal, right? The problem is that you have like multiple agents competing. And then in that sense, if you have one guy trying to uh, drive at 200 kilometers per hour and the other guy uh, driving at 60 kilometers per hour, you have a self-driving car in the middle of it trying to figure out these very different profiles of drivers and trucks and whatever, right? And then all of a sudden there is a pedestrian going crossing out where it, uh, he or she shouldn't be crossing. Um, so that's there are so many challenges for that. And I understand the appeal from the technical point of view because I mean, come on, like every programmer loves a challenge. If it's something really hard and it's a puzzle, yeah, let me try to solve it. But I wonder if there would be a different and easier way. On the other hand, if you think of that, that how would you implement something like a smart road? You need uh, like all the cars to be compatible with that road, which is a challenge in itself, right? Uh, and you have to have the, the government or, or this, the, 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 the private sector doing this uh, renovation of the road so it, it's, it's possible. So this will not happen anytime soon. On the other hand, the self-driving car, if you put effort enough yourself, you may try to have it done or on the road before that. You don't have to agree with anyone else in that sense. You know, so pros and cons. Like, like I said, everything else is a trade-off. So.
0: Yeah. No, thanks very much for sharing that. that. I mean, that's such a fascinating concept that we could talk about for hours, I'm sure. But, you know, um, <laughs> you know, I mean, often it is true, though, that, that, that you know, it, you know, if to every to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Right. And, uh, you know, if you're a programmer, you're kind of like, oh, let's like in your end of that, like computing technology, you're like, let's use this. Uh, but when it comes to smart roads, for example, like, well, here's an example of smart roads. They're all one way. Right. All of a sudden, all of a sudden self-driving just advanced 10 years, you know, um, uh, if, if roads are all one way or if they're all one lane or something like that. You know what I mean? Like, you know, that those kinds of things can could could make a huge difference. And it, it does seem to me that often that I mean, this is a sort of ordinary observation. But, you know, when when new technologies come around, we try and replicate the the old way of doing things with the new technology instead of thinking about a new way of doing things, right? And so, you know, the sort of conventional self-driving car that people are thinking of is like, oh, it's just like mine. It can do anything it wants, and it can go anywhere doing anything it wants and making decisions all the time. And it's like, uh, that might not be, <laughs> you know, there's a million people a year who, who die because we have that way of driving uh, as, a, as a default mode that just anybody can get in their car and go anywhere and do anything. Um, and my personal view is like on that note is that um, if, and when the day comes that people don't own their cars anymore, that's when standardization starts to happen of the kind that you were describing as a potential thing, you know, like when, 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 when you don't own your car anymore, then you don't care about all its features or, you know, what, even what its color is or something like that potentially. And so all of a sudden the opportunities for standardization come in and then we could see a lot of, of movement on that area. Um, but yeah, thanks very much for sharing those thoughts. I mean, this you know, some, Personal interest in mine. it's great to hear an expert like you in, in these these technologies talk about it. Um, uh, moving on uh, to the last part of the interview, where we talk about your the process of writing your book and things like that. Um, so it's a very big book. Uh, you said you spent you know many many hours on it, and I was wondering if you could talk a little about, bit about your approach to it as a writer. I mean, you mentioned earlier when you're talking about university degrees, discipline, and plans and things like that. Did you say to yourself, okay, or did you work out after a while, you know, I'm going to get up at four in the morning and write for three hours every day? Did you have a system like that that you used to? Uh, Work on the book.
1: And that's one one of the reasons that I mentioned that having a schedule or something that's important when you're like attending an institution is because I know myself I'm not that good at doing it myself. Uh, so I had uh, the rough idea of what I would like to accomplish with the book when I started. I know that the blog posts were like the, the the baseline, right? But the, the initial building block of that. But I was very optimistic, yeah, I'm going to write this, like, three months from now, it's going to be over. It took, like, like 11 months or so, so I was way off the initial planning. But also, I I didn't want to make that, like, job, you know? So I didn't want to set a deadline for myself or I wanted – because these parts, sometimes programming, coding, or in that sense, also writing is like a creative process, Right, it's less than a job or a task that needs to be done, and more of a creative process. So I would like. Okay, I wanted to let it flow. Basically, I started writing. I started writing. I had some 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 idea what I wanted to do. That, but you know, I was not sticking to anything very strict. So I started writing, and then there would be good days and bad days. Some days I would I started writing. I would like I don't know four thousand words in a single day. Because it was really going, you know. The other days was like, okay, I don't feel like writing. But then I would still try to force a little bit to write at least 200 words or so, you know. Even if I had to review it the next day to not let it, uh, you know. Because if you procrastinate too much, then you end up not doing it. (laughs) So I was trying to keep at, at least some of the rhythm. But one of the important part was to get all the code, since this was a book about Pythorgen and code is the major part of it, was to get all the code working and organized first. So I had all these big notebooks with lots of code on it. And then once, okay, I'm happy with the code, and then I started telling the story that was in my mind. And then I started writing, and at some point, okay, yeah, this is not working the way that I'm telling this story. And so I would go to the code and make some tweaks and then go back to the text. But the idea was to, to tell a story and more than that, to explain it in a way that would be um, uh, more clear. Because even even for me, when I'm trying to learn something new, I would go there and like, okay, this seems cryptic or sometimes you see the, the, the way that is presented. It just overlooks a lot of steps as if they were obvious. I mean they may be obvious to you once you've done this for many years but it's not, not obvious to the person that's reading it. They're like okay how the hell did he go from here to there? So I was trying to bridge all these gaps as I would see them coming from, from other sources and say okay how did they go from this to that? I'm going to go step by step. That's where the step by step from the title comes from right? Because like really some <laughs> painful process to like you know dissect every single step of the way to show it how it works without assuming much. Uh, that was the, the, the main idea. I learned a lot myself in the book because many things I learned before writing and then like yeah I'm gonna talk about that. And then all of a sudden okay but what's the impact of changing this or changing that or how does this have an effect on, on the result when you train the model. So I investigated lots of scenarios and different parameterizations to see how they will play out and then what like I would f- I found mm, lots of new stuff even for me. During the process of writing, which was very nice. Uh, so the, the writing process was like a lot of work, but it was very much enjoyable because it it was being creative ultimately.
0: Yeah, I'm just uh, sorry, I'm just looking up here. What you said was that was so great, and that that reminded me of um uh, an. A- An interview I did with an author named Eric Mathis, uh, who's got this book on LeanPub called Beginner's Python Cheat Sheets. And he he has, I think, one of the best-selling kind of beginner's books on Python in the world. And he he said something very similar to you, which is like really getting it step by step. Like really doing that is such a challenge and you, you do learn a lot along the way, but it is, it is like, it is something you kind of have to enjoy at the same time. Right. You know, if there's no, if you're not getting any enjoyment out of it, then it's, it's tricky, but it, it is, it is funny how you can like, you can, it, you really do have to push yourself to not skip stuff.
1: I mean, I'm I'm curious by nature. So I would like to always to have more. And then I, a friend of mine was helping me with like reviewing the first draft of the things. And then at some point he was like, oh, why don't you talk about optimizers? I was not planning on talking about optimizers. But when he mentioned, yeah, okay, yeah, I'm going to can add optimizers. So there were like another 40 or 50 pages in the book about optimizers alone. Uh, I, I had to, to actually try to cut some stuff, stuff short because – it was already a thousand pages, but it could have been longer, you know, because I really like it, digging into the details and learning more about it. And that's when, okay, I need to finish this because <laughs> I mean, some people bought the book already; they are waiting to be finished. I need, I need to finish. Uh, and this is a difference between being self-published and uh, working with uh, with a traditional publishing, right? A pu- a publisher, right? Because there, you're gonna have to fit your your Work within the parameters that they expect you to do, right? So um, then you have to make it shorter. Then you have you cannot have uh, go into so much detail because you know they don't want to have a thousand pages book. They only have to, up to I don't know 500 or so. Uh, so I like the freedom that being able to you know decide myself. Yeah, I want to go crazy and have 50 more pages on optimizers alone, and that's it, right? I think that that's I like that. All right. There is uh, as again there's a trade-off because on the other hand I have to control myself and not uh, extend myself too much in in the book. But yeah, yeah I think it
0: worked. <laughs> Um, you mentioned you mentioned in there that uh, pe- while you were still working on the book, people had bought the book already and were waiting for it to be finished. So you, you and I, I looked this up before you did, you published your book in progress. Um, so you published it, you know, the first two chapters, I think was the first thing that you did when you, when you launched it. And then you published chapters along the way. Uh, what was your experience like publishing like that? Did you get lots of people kind of helping you with corrections or suggestions or complaints or demands? <laughs>
1: It, it was, I think, one of the, the points that uh, doing it partially, it's interesting because, I mean, knowing that some people already bought your book and they are expecting uh, to have it finished really helps you get going. Because I didn't want to let anyone down, right? I, can, I, want, I made a promise to myself and to the people that already bought the book that I would publish one chapter a month. So that would be at least of course and then I, I got like a two or three chapters ahead so if we you know if there was any delay I, I would have
0: some buffer smart <laughs>
1: <laughs> and it's still, it was hard to keep up until the end with a, a chapter amount. Um, I got a lot of feedback from my friends. I mean, they are all uh, uh, present in the acknowledgments page of my book because they really helped me with reading and pointing me some some of the things. And m- most of the the things like, okay, what do you mean by that? Or can you make it more clear? Because even if it was doing trying to do step by step sometimes my own bias or by knowing something for would get in the way and then I would just jump over something, right? They would bring me like, okay, shake me and say, okay, what what, what is that? Where does this come from? And then this was very helpful. Luckily, I I don't remember any complaints. I remember there were a couple of refunds along the way. One person complained about the, the layout. I don't like the layout very much because layout is really, really hard to have it right. (laughs) You know, I spent like 10 months uh, writing the book and between formatting everything and getting everything right. And then I organized the paperback edition. I was doing that. It was like another 10 months.
0: Oh, Ten months.
1: It, uh, it, yeah, because I I, I have someone to do to proofread everything. Because I mean I'm Brazilian, right? I'm not a, a native speaker, so I tried my best to write it uh, a, a correct English. But some 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 of the expressions or the stuff that I used was not uh, sounding so well to to uh, a native speaker. So she helped me with that. And then I had to review all that, you know, and formatting. And, and then the, sometimes the, the pictures would not be so, so great. I have to do it over. So, yeah, I mean, of course, I did a lot of mistakes at the beginning because it was my first book, right? I shouldn't have started with a thousand pages book.
0: <laughs> I should have
1: started with something smaller to learn first. But, yeah, next one, I'm I, I'm going to save some time on that.
0: And actually, in the interest of saving time and helping people listening who might be planning their work, their first book or working on their first book, what, um, what tools did you use to write the book? What, you know, I mean, I'm assuming you didn't use Microsoft Word if you were doing a lot of formatting <laughs> and it was a thousand pages long. Um, so, yeah, can you just let us know the detail of what, of what you used?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, so um, mostly I use uh, there were two stages, right? First, I was writing in Markdown. So I used this editor called TypePora which is very nice. I really like because of the problem with the, uh, doing markdown, some of the editors, they have like two, two windows, right? One you write markdown, the other you see it. And then it's not nice because you know, it gets at least for me, it would get in the flow. At this step four, you would write a markdown render it automatically in the same window. So it was a uh, felt like, okay, you can do stuff. Uh, so I would write all of that. But then when I I was already trying to to make it the, the PDF version, I bumped into some problems that I couldn't overcome with that. And then I had to convert everything to ask to doc. Okay. Then I use this ask-to-doctor, ask X ask to doctor PDF, X to doctor EPUB. So it does mix all these conversions. So I had to make this change to convert some of the chapters for that. Uh, and then I was able to, to get the PDFs in the way that I wanted, you know, all the formatting the funny thing is that even if I did this after three or four chapters, I still kept uh, writing the book in Typora because it was so, it felt so good to write it, you know, and then I was like already mastering the conversion. So would we'll just write everything in the portal. And then in the end, convert Markdown to ask the doctor, make some tweaks and then generate the PDFs for the book. Uh, but th- that was not even the, the most challenging part of it. I think that the, the worst part is to, to getting all these images correct, you know, because then you have the, all the the the, resolu- the resolutions and I have to change and the resize and the rescale these like so many times. <laughs> so that was a lot of work. But yeah, I'm I'm proud of that. i really happy with the result.
0: Oh, it's a it's an amazing book and well very well produced. And thank you very much for sharing those details, including the challenges and the ways you you, know, you sort of you have to find your path and and develop it yourself. And it's it's one of the interesting things about self-publishing is that, of course, you're free of the constraints that the publisher might impose on you and stuff like that. You're also, in a sense, free of all the, professional help they can give you producing your book. Uh, and so you have to learn how to you have to learn how to do it yourself or pay someone to do it for you. But even then you still have to learn how to work with people who are paid to do this kind of thing. So you still have to learn a lot about it because it is hard to make a well-formatted book, particularly one with lots of pictures and you know, things like code samples and and things like that. The last question uh, we always save for guests on the podcast, if they're a lean pub author, is if there was one terribly broken and frustrating thing about lean pub that we could fix for you. Or if there was one magical feature that we could build for you, uh, can you think of anything you would ask us to do?
1: So what I'm, I don't think that, I, I don't think anything is terribly broken. I'm really <laughs> I'm really happy with the overall experience with Limpop. Um, the, the only thing that at the very beginning when I tried to use the the, the this integration with GitHub, so the would write the Markdown, it would send to limp up itself. Some when it was rendering the code in the PDFs, sometimes the um, it would not respect the boundaries, you know, with the, the background, and then it would get a little bit above or a little bit below. So that's one of the reasons that I end up doing the the, the book using Ask to Doctor because I couldn't solve this when I was trying to do the, the code snippets. Sometimes they would not be rendered properly. But that was the only thing, the only problem that I had. And, but since I had, like, a whole lot of snips of code in the book, that, that was something that I could not, like, um, handle, right, or get over with. So that's why I made the change. But apart apart from that, I, I'm happy. I really like the, you know, the table of contents thing that you can put the, the HTML inside and, and put it there. So, yeah.
0: No complaints, no worries. Yeah, no, thanks. Thanks very much for sharing that. Yeah, no, there are there are um so there are some some cases where sometimes the formatting of of sort of the the output in the in the Leanpub book isn't exactly what the author wants, and if it's not exactly what you want, you know, some people are like that's fine, and other people are like no, like I want it to be exactly like I want it to be, uh, and and it all depends on the project and the and the author and things like that, um, and so uh, yeah, no, thanks very much for sharing that. That's very important feedback for us to hear, and uh, yes, and the the HTML feature that you're mentioning. So um, if you're uploading a book to Leanpub as opposed to using one of our own writing flows, we can't kind of see the table of contents in in the file that you've uploaded. And so we can't show it on the book landing page. But we do give you an, an option to sort of like, if you know a little bit of HTML, you can actually sort of tell LeanPub what to show for the table of contents on the book landing page, which really helps readers kind of discover the book and decide whether they want to buy it. And it's going to give them, give them what they want. Well, uh, thank you very much, Daniel, for taking the time out of your uh, evening uh, to uh, talk to, talk to me and talk to our audience. And thank you very much for using LeanPub as the platform for your really amazing book.
1: Very nice to talk to you. really happy to participate. That was my first podcast. Thank you so much for the invitation.
0: Oh, thanks very much. You did a very good job. (laughs)